ABMP, Associated Bodywork Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from HealWell. Membership with ABMP offers comprehensive liability insurance, along with meaningful resources and support that make a difference in your career, including free CE in the ABMP Education Center, quick reference apps like 5-Minute Muscles and Pocket Pathology, Pocket Suite Scheduling and Booking Software, and the Inspirational Massage and Bodywork Magazine. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Hello and welcome back to Season 8 of Interdisciplinary, Episode uh, something. I forgot to look it up before we started recording, but we appreciate that you are here with us on this journey through season eight, um, with our sort of exploration and, um, seeking of understanding around code switching, how that shows up in healthcare, in life, and how that affects our ability to care for other folk, to, uh, be in relationship with other folk and, um, to create a better and more compassionate world. So I am joined here by Corey Rivera and our very special guest, Jamil Rivers. And if that name is familiar, it's probably because you have seen one of her awesome projects out in the world or possibly heard her on the podcast before. Um, So we are looking forward to this conversation. But before we get started, as is contractually obligated, we have for you a pun. What's our pun today, Corey? Uh, so, you know, I, I had this chemistry teacher once and they tried to tell a joke, but it, it got no reaction. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Ooh, I, you know, I almost had a follow-up chemistry joke, and then I realized that my chemistry knowledge is not that great, so just leave it there. <laughs> um, so um, let's just get right into this conversation with, with our guest today. Um, Jamil, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast today, and I would love, if you don't mind, if you could start by just reminding folk of who you are, what you do, um, and whatever you would like us to know about you. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me again. Um, So I'm Jamil Rivers. I am a very busy married mom of three, (laughs) three boys and a wonderful dog, Bucky. And I am also living with metastatic breast cancer. Um, I am the founder and CEO of the Chrysalis Initiative, proud board member of HealWell, uh, board president of Metaviver Research and Support, and I'm also on the board of Living Beyond Breast Cancer. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, So we've had this question come up pretty much every episode, and um, I I would love if if you could help, help us start to wrestle with the question. And the question is, what is code switching? Mm. Um, well, I don't know if I'm um, professional enough or knowledgeable enough as an expert to give the um, exact definition, but code switching means that, you know, as far as how you communicate, um, your communication is going to change based off of the setting that you're, you're currently um, present at the time in order to potentially receive some type of benefit. So typically, if you're um, a Black person and, you know, you're going into spaces where you have to assimilate, historically, you know, that means we have to change our dialects, we have to um, speak uh, more proper, as you will, than what you would in just your normal um, local setting. And that was a requirement a lot of times in order for Black people not to be as intimidating. You know, you don't want to come across as the intimidating Black man or the angry Black woman. And so, of course, they're going to try to be as non-threatening as possible. And so that um, is reflected in professional spaces, going to stores, you know, trying to look at homes, buy a house, um, going to the bank. (laughs) You know, um, so that code switching has been a tool 
that you know people have been able to use in particular in my community people of color um, and black people where you know in order to be acceptable or you know the uh, black person that's acceptable and worthy of the opportunity whether it's employment or banking or credit or a job um, and with my work with the chrysalis initiative which we're focused on um, addressing disparities when it comes to bias and racism in the care setting. And so, of course, the healthcare system has a long history of racism and bias. And so we find that the code switching happens there. You know, you have uh, Black people that are going into these spaces, vulnerable, um, trying to seek out the best care. And so they feel that they have to code switch and represent themselves in the best light possible so that they are worthy of getting that um, attention and care that they should just have as a standard. Yeah, there was, oh, thank you so much. There, there were so many things in there that, that um, so many threads that I wanna pick up and, and sort of dive into. Um, but I wanna start with the, one of the, the last things that you said, um, worthy of receiving care, mm. um, which, is, um, I don't even have a word for the, <laughs> how that, that, um, how that is as a provider to understand that this is yeah. a thing. Yeah, um, I find a lot of providers don't understand this is a thing. And when the Chrysalis Initiative was launched, that's specifically the space that we're in. I think there's so many organizations and resources for dealing with barriers to receiving care that are related to insurance or related to income or, you know, but our specific area is the, the barriers in care and substandard care received due to racism and bias. And I think it's, we have to acknowledge that it's a problem um, in order to really address the issue. And so many providers think that um, Black people have worse outcomes in across the board in all types of diseases and states and outcomes, um, in particular cancer, where we focus on breast, ovarian and lung. Um, and they think that it must be biological differences. It must be uh, poor health literacy or poverty or lack of insurance. Um, and they think, well, we have equity in our mission statement. We are focused about it. We have checked off the box and we have you know, financial resources and a social worker, <clears throat> you know, within the hospital. And so we're good, you know, anything else. <laughs> we did the has, thing. <laughs> right, it has, has nothing to do with us, nothing to see here. And so I think it's, you know, our uh, strategy is using technology, literally using their own data, and then also um, establishing what their standard operating procedures are. <clears throat> what their baseline is as far as care delivery and showing on that continuum of care and in their care delivery, those um, disparate areas <clears throat> when it comes to their patients of color. And it really is enlightening for them because I think, to me, I don't understand why it's so surprising because I think it's, you think, oh, well, it's 2022, you know, if I'm going to the doctor, I'm, I should just get, you know, whatever it is, meaning if I go to the dentist, I need a root canal, I'm gonna get a root canal. You know, it's not something that you have to vet or, you know, make sure that you're getting the right thing. But a lot of times, and it, it's possible maybe because there's so many touch points when it comes to cancer care, how those gaps and holes can, you know, develop and occur, but not knowing that the bias can influence the type of care that that person can receive. I think it's really surprising. You would think that there's some accountability, you know, how is it that these folks, if they are harboring bias, have the autonomy in order to do that? And so that's where, you know, we come in where we can kind of reveal those blind spots. But I do think that there has to be greater accountability to acknowledge that this is an issue. And, you know, but we also have these same issues in education and mm -hmm. policing and <laughs> banking. Mm -hmm. So all these elements of society. But I think legally we can you know we're supposed to not be discriminated against and I think there's also this thought that racism only manifests within you know the most extreme examples meaning that um, someone is 
using racial slurs or attacking someone, but also denying someone quality healthcare is one of the most egregious forms of racism, if you think about it. I think even Martin Luther King said that that was the most, you know, um, egregious type of racism to deny someone. I mean, just the right to live. I mean, if a person is seeking care and it doesn't register that they should receive the same standard of care, that's definitely an issue that has to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. We had we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who was talking about, um, who was a Black man in America and was talking about his history in the medical system. Um, and he talked a lot about uh, what he, uh, medical gaslighting, basically <laughs> going to providers who, okay, so that looks like a look of recognition. <laughs> Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like going to providers and either not being believed or just having like medication shoved at him that without any, research into the potential possibly fatal side effects of some medications um, and having to learn to um, communicate in a way that was really um, that pushed up against that mm -hmm. as well as right. but, but yeah. you know imagine being someone where you don't know going in that you have to do that and the damage that that can do Right. Because unbeknownst to you, you have no idea that this is even a thing that you should be looking out for. I think as Black people, you know, we've used to, you know, our community, our families, th that's where that code switching came in. It's like, okay, if you want to, um, you know, be successful, um, you know, James Baldwin used to say, well, he did say that Black people know white people really well, because we've had to really learn who white people were because they were the power structure. We had to know how to navigate through these systems and society in all these public spaces, really to save our lives. It was a survival. Um, but if you think about it, most white people do not notice racism or bias unless they have some type of, you know, they've, had, they've taken the time to learn about it. Um, that's why history and learning about our history is so important. Um, and just having that cultural humility and learning about um, these, these type of issues in society. But if you think about it, they really don't know Black people that well. And if you think about just how we're still so segregated yeah. um, in our housing, in our schools, in our workplaces, if they aren't, if they are exposed to a Black person, it might be what they see in maybe movies or something like that. And, and there's something that develops in their brain as to who this person is. And so now you have a Black person coming into these spaces where this person could be harboring bias and has no idea. But based off of those assumptions, it's influencing the care that is now being delivered. And now this person who is vulnerable in that space has no idea <laughs> that this is something that they should even be looking for. And so that is literally the work that we're doing. So it's enlightening the providers that this is a thing, this is an issue, this is a problem. It can actually have dire impacts on the person living or not, you know? And right. then educating the person and providing that reinforcement and wraparound support to this person of color that's going into this healthcare space, vulnerable. What This is what you need to know. And this is how you can make sure that you get the quality standard of care that you're supposed to get. But until we can fix the issue, um, we're going to continue to have these problems, but that's where that code switching comes in. Yeah, yeah, and this this burden of the work of not only um, de managing the health of a body that is maybe dealing with cancer or other um, other disease, but managing a healthcare system that doesn't know you, right, um, and isn't forced to care. Right. And my whole thing is, I really don't care if you like me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't. but, you know, if I'm going into this space, whatever the national guidance is for the care that I'm receiving, you're operating as a hospital, you know, mm -hmm. you're supposed to make sure that I am receiving the care that is best practice for the, the disease or ailment that I have. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be substandard or incomplete or inaccurate 
because I've, uh, I'm of color. And when you think about racism, it has nothing really to do about people in particular as individuals. It's about allocation of resources. Yes. It's about power structures. And so when you have, um, when you can play on these biases that people, you know, it's almost as if it's part of their DNA. It's part of their, you know, this, these are the values that have been embedded in them as far as these beliefs that influence their actions. But bottom line is it's, I don't think you should have access or receive this because of your difference, because you are not worthy of this because of the, you know, it really is about allocation of resources. So I think if you break it down at that level, you know, it could be really, you know, hurtful for a person of color or if you're LGBTQ or, you know, if you are some marginalized community where you don't understand where this um, visceral <laughs> difference, um, um, almost neglect or uh, is coming from because it has nothing to do with you as a person, but it's a power structure. It's to keep things as they are as the status quo. And yeah. anything that bumps up against that, you know, then it's a problem. And so it's really important for people to understand that, you know, racism can influence in those instances where as a result, then there's that substandard education, that substandard care, that substandard access resources um, where it's across the board. And so code switching is just one of those tools that has developed as a way for Black people to be more accepted, to penetrate that bias, if you will, you know? And so me, actually, I was not on the receiving end of any bias in my care, but helping so many other women of color, I've seen that it is definitely an issue where they have sufficient income, have sufficient health insurance, have all the sufficient resources and able to navigate those barriers, but still not receiving standard of care where it actually could impact their survival and outcomes with cancer. And so if you think about, um, you know, code switching is just one of those tools where you can turn it on, be more acceptable, less threatening to white people or those people in those power structures and spaces. Um, but it really is just a tool for survival. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it <laughs> and it does affect care because I think I think this is a statistic that I, I learned from you and correct me if the, I'm getting this wrong, where black women with breast cancer, is it they're 40% more likely to die of their disease? 42% more likely. 42% yes. more likely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean- Well, we, actually we, they're 42% dying, 42% uh, dying at a higher rate, higher than white women. And 71% more likely to die from their disease. Oh, wow. Cancer. Yeah. I, um, I, I am taking that in for a second because this is this is actually like the, the structural racism white people's ignorance, um, right, is actually killing people. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, this is not like rude girls, you know, it's not like, <laughs> oh, I'm just mean, you know, or, yeah. you know, that, no, this actually is impacting whether if you live or die. Yeah. You know? And I think that's the seriousness of it for me, where, you know, I feel that, again, you don't have to like me, but you don't have to kick me into the ground quicker. You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's really at that level where and it, it, it makes you get into the psyche because it's it just makes well, why would they <laughs> when you just take case by case, it's why would they do that? Why would they not give the appropriate? And I think it is, um, you know, in the CDC studies this Harvard studies this where, again, if you have the bias can actually influence the care that's being delivered to that person mm -hmm. where they are now receiving lesser than. So, and, and it's almost as if it's death by paper cut because you'll have just all these holes poked in that continuum of care. It might not even be anything as blatant and, and overt as someone being you know, racial or racist, but sometimes it's structural where that black patient that's walking through the doors is not on the receiving end of the 
the standard that the average white patient would receive when they walk through the doors. Yeah. Or it could be a practitioner that is harboring bias. Um, and sometimes they're not even cognizant of it. Right. And they're, those assumptions and biases are resulting in that person receiving lesser than or substandard care um, in that setting. But the yeah. thing is, we're dealing with people. Everyone has biases, right? Mm-hmm. But your bias should not be able to impact the standard of care that I receive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, I, I want to kind of segue into, um, I was looking at your websites and particularly the website for the app. Uh, mm-hmm. It's BC Navi is that? Yeah, BC that? Navi. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a couple of things that, it, that I uh, want to talk about, about that. Well, lots of things. Um, <laughs> But I was I was looking at the testimonials and and there was a one of them a woman who talked about I think a nurse who had assumed something about her insurance that she didn't have yeah. access to a particular yeah. service mm-hmm. that she did have access <laughs> yeah. to right that um, happens and this, a lot yeah and it's it this is an assumption made based on nothing other than this is what my eyes see yes um, absolutely yeah. And I had a couple of like reactions to when I was looking at the website. Like, first of all, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This resource is amazing. And I, I am so glad it exists. And then the other layer of that was, wow, I'm so that sad that this exists, has right? to, yeah, that it has to exist. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it, a big part of that seemed to be, and please tell me if I'm completely misunderstanding your app. Um, but connecting people who, um, women, people with cancer with a coach who can kind of teach them. In my mind, I was like, oh, this person's going to teach them how to code switch in this environment. Oh, no, not necessarily. No, it's, Uh, um, you know, I feel that um, code switching was a tool. I don't judge historically why Black people have had to do it. But I Mm -hmm. think at this point, in my life, especially, I feel that if I can't be my authentic self and you don't appreciate my value and my worth and who I am, then I'm not in the right space. I'm not in the right setting. I do not need to be here if I can't be my true authentic self. And it is sad because we do have some people in rural areas that actually do have a racist doctor at this point. But what the equalizer is, and we're erasing the line of the disparities, meaning you could have a racist doctor, right? But because of your coach, who's not just providing you social support, but is knowledgeable about the standard of care that you should receive. And so you have the resources of your coach that you can connect with on the phone or through the app. Um, And you have all the links and resources where you can fact check that doctor in real time and provide them the resources for them to understand you're knowledgeable. You know what type of care you're supposed to receive. And so they're not gonna have the opportunity to provide you with incomplete or inaccurate care. They're going, we're going to make sure that you receive quality standard of care, even if they don't tell you about that clinical trial, even if they don't tell you about that particular treatment, because it's based off of the latest and greatest national guidelines. So you walk in knowing the type of care that you're supposed to get, and you have all of those links in the palm of your hand, through your phone or your iPad, <laughs> or if you want to pick up the phone, you know, and talk to your coach because you can do that in real time. Or you also have the benefit of us as organization because whatever the barrier is that they tell you that they can help you with, once we figure out what your standard of care should be, we're going to make sure that you stay on that and that whatever the barrier is, that it's resolved for you so that you that you stay on track. And then as you continue to check in with your coach, and your knowledge about, because things change, especially if you have metastatic cancer, you, where you're going to constantly have to revisit what needs to happen for your cancer. You always have that resource available to you. And then as you're checking in with your coach, we're tracking how you're doing. So behind the scenes with BC Navi is the care tracker, where if you fall below baseline, then we're alerting you. There, you know, your coach is alerting us. And then also, if we if it's a partnership that we have with that particular health system, we're letting them know what needs to happen in order to make sure that you're back on track. Yeah, it's it's like it's it's like power in your pocket. Yes, <laughs> I, uh, I love the fact that you're is. you're fighting fire with data. 
Yes. I think that's amazing. And I know. <laughs> I also think, oh man, it's great. Um, I also love that you are just, <laughs> so sometimes if you will, we get frustrated. Um, and part of that frustration is like how many people there are to still convince that there is a problem in the first place while right. people are getting harmed. Yes. And I love that your program was like, not worried about it. Not right. worried about it. Like, <laughs> You're just gonna you're just gonna follow the national standards and that's what you're right. gonna do. And I'm going to make sure of it. Right. And I don't and care I mean, how you feel. You know, I feel like, you know, it's gonna take some time for the regulatory bodies and legislation and the national system to catch up. But in mm-hmm. the meantime, we're going to help people now not mm-hmm. die. Right. Yes. Um, and I think it's also um, of which we're not we're not going to beg we're not going to plead we're not going to hey I'm worthy you should care about me I think we know at this point that there are people that are just you know not going to care um, about you in particular but you know what your life is still valuable and you know black women especially um, you know we're typically not protected in America you know when you just think of a uh, Breonna Taylor or a Sandra Bland, right? How could that happen? And I always, you know, when I'm teaching white people about racism, I said, could you imagine that happening to a white person or a white woman? And if it makes you go, oh my goodness, no, then it probably has some racism involved, right? If that was a situation where if you just switched it out from a black person to a white person and you can't imagine that happening, that's probably your first clue that there was an issue there that was racial. And so we're saying, you know what? we got Black women if nobody else says. Yeah, that's, uh, um, I'm thinking also in terms of like the the benefit of having, which is not always possible, but having um, a physician and people who care for you who look like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how that's another, that's like another gap that you're filling in. It's, there's a standard doesn't matter you know if, right. you're, if, if you're not if you can't find a physician who looks like you we'll still make sure that you get right, the right and care. some of our best patients we have hundreds where it is already demonstrated that their race their doctor is racist and it's not like I always hear it's funny you know I'm a northeastern so it's like we have so many doctors and resources available to us and and I hear advocates and people say just fire that doctor you don't need them <laughs> just find someone else but the next doctor that you could go to is like 600 miles away so that's not really feasible so even those ones with the racist doctors are doing great because they know this is what I need this is what I'm supposed to get and I'm not they're not relying on that doctor on you know it's it's a shame that we're limited in that way um because you know there's that next doctor is so far But the fact that they can access the, you know, NCI um, designated doctors that we work with and get second opinions virtually even, um, and we help with, you know, giving them that equal access, that NCI standard of care, um, where they don't have to just be limited to where they are. And in particular, not just that it could be an area with not enough resources, but also limited meaning that they're... Uh, doctor is kind of checked out, you know, not really vouching or vying for them. And a lot of times it's due to racism and bias, but you know what? doesn't matter. It's okay. You have the information that you need and they do have to treat you. <laughs> they are billing your insurance. You're seen there as a patient, you know, but you can make sure that you're getting the appropriate treatment for the, your individual cancer. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about we are in the middle of or just finishing up our um, pediatric massage in the clinical setting class in a hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. And there are folk who um, coming to the infusion center there who drive a couple of hours because um, that's a hospital that, you know, draws from rural areas in Kentucky that may not have the resources to treat more complicated cancers or, or diagnoses. Um, and to people who are um, not only lack access to care because of structural racism, but also because of location and, Mm. um, you know, just uh, 
some, for some folks, economic situations. Right. Um, and being able to to have access to like a coach who can tell you this is this is what you're supposed to get, and it yep. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, like this other stuff. Exactly. Doesn't matter. You should get yep. the same stuff. Mm-hmm. As- <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um, I want to go back to something that that you said at the very beginning, um, because I think this is important for for all providers to, if they don't aren't aware of, to be aware of, and to begin to understand and um, and feel and unpack. Um, you were talking about uh, when you were divine, uh, defining code switching, talking about um, not wanting to be. Um, I'm forgetting the exact word you use, but not wanting to be uh, threatening, threatening. There we go. Like the threatening (laughs) black man or the angry black woman. Right. Um, And I, I heard that. um, And also just got this gut punch of like, Oh, but that means that there are still always so many places where people feel like they can't be all of themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that intersection with healthcare where you're already vulnerable. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that and how? how oh, I know. That? It's just, it's just so, you know, just think uh, like, uh, there's so much to unpack there. There's, you know, if you are a person and you have to be in that environment where you want to seek out care um, and you can't be your authentic self. Um, so it's almost as if like, you know how you dress up to go to the bank to get a loan, you're now, you have to present in the best way. Sometimes you bring your white colleague or friend or relative in order to show, hey, I'm one of those good black people that's deserving of care. Or, um, you know what, you want to dress up and present yourself as professional as possible so that you're one of those acceptable people. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have to just understand that no matter how you know, great your shoes look or your suit looks or how proper you speak, you're still a Black person. You're still going to be considered lesser than to that particular person if they're harboring bias in that way. Um, And then you have folks that avoid seeking the care that they need because of that. And so I also think it's important for practitioners to understand and providers to understand that if you have a space that isn't inclusive and welcoming, where you're not making eye contact, your body language makes it seem as if this person is a bother or a burden, or you're disgusted by them. It gets that deep, you know, Mm -hmm. in an area. So how could this person trust you with their care? How could this person trust that you're going to have their best interest in mind when you're recommending the therapeutic or, you know, care that they're supposed to receive as far as treatment? And then what if, you actually don't make it so that they actually see the doctor. They might only be limited to seeing the nurse practitioner. Um, Or if they do uh, get to see the oncologist, it's, um, you know, they're scrutinized and interrogated as if their their insurance could not be acceptable. Show me your papers, you know, Mm. let me, let me vet this even further. Um, Or uh, you have to wait for 45 to 60 minutes when that's not the average wait time for the, you know, but it is for those patients of color. So you're already seeing the disparity in treatment, just that's not the usual, not the average. Um, Or if they're dealing with billing or, you know, just um, dealing with those challenges where, um, you know, just assuming that they don't have sufficient insurance or having to go over and above as far as, you know, it's not just showing your card, you have to make the calls, you have to show. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, well, we're not even gonna take the time to provide that administrative burden. And and what I'm describing now, it's interesting because most people are saying, oh, that can't be the norm, right? (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) Right, that's just crazy town, that can't be the norm, but it happens more often than you would think. Yeah. You know, and so I think providers have to really acknowledge that and think about what is the impact to the person on the receiving end of all of that. And just think about like a clinical trial, right? So right. you have to deal with, it's something that could benefit you. You don't know if you could trust the people. 
the people that are engaging with you are treating you as if you're a burden and a problem and a, and a bother. So why would you constantly want to travel and deal with the burden of being there for that many days and hours on end in order to receive the treatment that you're supposed to get? So right. it just creates more barriers to the care than what needs to be there. Well, right. And if the people who are operating a clinical trial aren't operating with a true understanding of the history of medicine and what how medicine has interacted with Black folks, yes, um, and and how that might you know show up, <laughs> right, in a, mm-hmm. in a clinical trial, um, absolutely. Then you're missing that to to like have these honest conversations about yeah mm-hmm. this this kind of environment has been deeply harmful. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like trusting the police if you're yeah. <laughs> and I actually say all the time that, you know, I think the police brutality due to what happened with George Floyd, I think general society and white people are finally getting an understanding of what black people have known for the longest time. Right. So but being a black woman going into the healthcare system, into the hospital is just as dangerous as a black man being pulled over by the police. Yeah. And I think that's striking for people to figure out, but just going in and it could be that just depraved indifference, Black women not being listened to, um, considered to be lesser than, having these multiple touch points of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. it ends up resulting in greater um, likelihood of death across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see it the most dire in cancer and then also reproductive health and maternal health. Yes. Yes. I was just thinking about that, 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 um, the, the statistics about maternal injury, mortality, infant mortality are, Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. And it goes beyond if everything is the same when it comes to insurance and income, you still have, uh, these disparate outcomes. Right. That can't be rationalized or explained away by biological differences or social economic issues. Right, right. This is, uh, and and I feel like sometimes we, um, we meaning white people, um, want want people of color to sort of tell us their trauma stories. Like we don't, you don't owe us, <laughs> you don't owe us your trauma stories, you know. Right. <laughs> but um, I was thinking of this because I was reading an article about Serena Williams' birth mm-hmm, experience, yes. mm-hmm. which was pretty awful. Right. And imagine all the resources and wealth and yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And reading that and thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is how folk are going to recognize that, right. This is a problem for any. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Black person who is giving birth. Right. You're not protected just because you have good insurance or a good income or you're able to code switch or you just naturally talk proper or you're non-threatening. Sometimes it's it's just the fact that you are a black woman or you're a black man. Right. Or if you have a white partner or if you, you know, whatever. None of of that is going to protect you. Yeah. Serena Williams has a white husband. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not going to be, um, you know, your saving grace. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Um, well, tell me about, I want to go back to another thing that you said that I wrote down because I was like, oh, this is good. I want to talk about this. Because um, <laughs> you talked about, um, I think what you said was something along the lines of uh, code switching is a thing that you do. Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, the in order to receive benefits in a particular yeah. situation. Right. And, and I wrote down, okay, receive benefits or avoid harm? Or is that the same thing? Both. Yeah. <laughs> both. I mean, yeah. it's really both. Yeah. 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 Like sometimes the benefit is you get the same thing that everybody else gets. I wouldn't say you would get the same thing everybody else gets. Mm. I mean, definitely not in comparison to a white person, mm. but it might edge you out as far as when you're thinking about just historically, when that code switch could be used as a tool, you being selected as that token Black person or the the chosen one, if you will, that could penetrate that space, right? Yeah, so yeah. even just think about Lena Horne, 
Um, Mm -hmm. being a person who white people did not feel threatened by, she's assimilating, you know, her family was considered to be, even though they were black, you know, um, definitely had a high income, great education, you know, just (laughs) the type of acceptable, acceptable black family that white people could, you know, feel comfortable with. Right. Mm -hmm. But even she was not, um, even I, I, I forget what care there was a role that Ava Gardner got where she's playing a black woman that is that appears white <laughs> and Lena Horne was still too black for that part even though it was the, she could not be a leading lady so even though she was able to garner some areas and spaces and navigate and have some access and benefit of course she's had a fan, she had a fantastic career but even still it was limited to a certain level she still wasn't Ava Gardner Ava Gardner was given that role of a black woman more so than Lena Horne, who actually is black. Right. You know, so, <laughs> so just think about, you know, the, so you can navigate through those spaces. However, you know, and so there's different things, whether it's code switching, speaking proper, um, you know, just having those opportunities. And I think historically, that's how um, Black people have strategically navigated, right? Even when you think about um, Diane Carroll, who was one of the first Black people to, well, first Black woman to have her own sitcom, if you will. Um, And she wanted to be more um, active in the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King said, no, I need you to be on television where where you're in white people's living rooms, right? You're doing more to move forward this movement. So you don't have to, you know, because he wasn't popular back then. <laughs> so we love him now, but he wasn't popular back then. Yeah. So, you know, he's saying, no, you're actually doing more. You're helping more so than you would if you were to come march on the street with me because your um, white people are being introduced to Black people in this way. You're in their living room. And think about Sidney Poitier, same example, Yeah. right? Michelle Nichols yeah exactly yeah so you know they that's how they were moving it forward um and it's not necessarily a code switch but being acceptable where you're able to assimilate and of course it's continuing to grow but at the same time now I think this younger generation of people are saying you know what we're not knocking we're not at requesting permission anymore we are going to make sure that we have that same economic opportunity and advocacy opportunity. And we're going to own, you know, we're going to lend to ourselves. We're going to own our businesses. We're going to be entrepreneurial and own our properties. We're going to educate more of our people so that they can, you know, um, be more oncologists. They can provide the care to us so that we don't have to deal with you know, trying to prove we're worthy, (laughs) right? We are worthy. If you didn't get the memo, then by this point, I mean, because I know me personally, when people are, when you just think about how Black people are considered to be substandard citizens, Mm -hmm. when my family has been here since 1760. Mm -hmm. So hello, if anybody is an American, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, come on. So, but you still have people that have this, you know, it, and again, nothing to do with people of color personally. It's about allocation of resources. So right. it's a easy. It's easier to rationalize and substantiate um, depriving people of their just due and what they're supposed to receive if you can rationalize in your head that they're lesser than. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna make sure we in the little bit of space that we have and impact that we have, we're making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, it takes too long for people to get it, I guess. We don't have that type of time. (laughs) Well, right. Well, right. Especially when you're talking about things like metastatic breast cancer. Right. You know, Um, well, I'm I'm wondering, like, as uh, white providers, um, you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, creating a space that is open and welcoming. um, And I'm wondering, like, what else you wish that we would do? that mm-hmm. would that would take some of the burden off of off of you mm-hmm. um, to fill in where we're screwing right. up. I really do think that there has to be more a- accountability. We are in a capitalist country, you know, even mm-hmm. our healthcare system is based off of money. Um, so I really think that in order for these hospitals to operate, 
that they have to prove that they're providing equitable care when it comes to the outcomes. Yes. So, you know, not tied to checking off a box where, hey, yeah, we refer Black patients to clinical trials, maybe sometimes when we feel like it. Um, <laughs> we uh, provide them with um, care, might not be complete, but they're here, we're giving it to them. You know, um, we might make it burdensome, but you know, they're here. Um, so yeah, getting away from that and having more so accountability tied to the actual outcome. So if your outcomes, uh, when it comes to tracking that continuum of care, when it comes to cancer is still looking, you know, where those numbers we were talking about earlier. Um, and it, it can't just be associated with social economic issues, so insurance or income, right? right because right. we actually have a good portion of patients that are on Medicaid and have comparable outcomes to general population patients because it's literally just, what is the standard of care and how do we resolve the barrier? And a lot mm -hmm. of times it's just taking the time and we are not a rich organization, you know? Mm -hmm. So if a nonprofit organization can do it, then I'm pretty sure the healthcare system and the powers that be and all of these corporations that are in the healthcare industry can figure this out. And so that's why we're really evidence-based and data-driven um, but there has to be more accountability when it comes to tying equity to outcomes. So, um, you know, if I, I compare it to say, if you had a doctor that was just punching a black woman in the face every time mm. <laughs> they went to that particular doctor, you would do something about that, right? So if you have a doctor that is, because the, the things that they can um, either do or not do in, in terms of a person's care can actually impact if they live or, live or die. Right. So there's so many patients where um, they did not receive the full diagnostic workup or there could have been a delay in their treatment that was identified or um, the um, additional testing that they should have received after that initial treatment wasn't done. All of those things can influence ultimately whether or not that person is going to, how long that person will survive with the disease. And yeah. so it can make, um, it really can impact um, that person's care and whether or not if they live or die. And so there, I feel that it's that important to stress that if you have, if it's the same way that you would do something if someone was hitting or punching black women in the face, that they, if they're depriving them and, and removing or, you know, implementing something that is not conducive of them surviving, it can have that big of an impact to them living or, or um, dying from the disease. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what would happen if like the ability for a physician, a physician to continue practicing, you right. know, their yeah. licensing was tied to like truly equitable accountability. Right. right. Or even a hospital being able to operate. Yeah. Because yeah. it's funny when we do these focus groups or when we're able to, um, you know, reveal um, those pockets or silos of where the bias and racism is impacting care. It's funny, most, a lot of people, they already know who the bad actors are. Uh, <laughs> before yeah, it's no in. secret. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so if there was more accountability there, you would think, okay, wow. But why just let that continue as is? Yeah. Yeah. I, that, I have a question about kind of the opposite. So um, we talk about accountability. What sorts of things do you hear probably repeatedly as excuses for why somebody didn't get treatment? Like, what are the big red flags where you're like, right, no. Well, well I think also there's a lot of wiggle room. So oncologists have a lot of autonomy where um, if you look at the national guidelines, it says we strongly, we strongly recommend, you should strongly consider. Like, <laughs> Strong. So right, so if a per, you know, it, what, one study that was really interesting was, I think most people know that for HER2 positive breast cancer, the standard of care is a cancer patient is supposed to receive Herceptin. Mm -hmm. So they did a study and they found that more than 50% of the black women with HER2 positive breast cancer did not receive Herceptin. I forget the actual number, but it was significant. 
So it's like, how does that happen? Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so I don't know if it's just a lack of uh, accountability where those type of just blatant omissions mm-hmm. and inaccuracies in the care are not addressed. Um, but a lot of times the excuses, oh, well, that's just, and, and this is what I love because you can't dispute your own data, right? <laughs> this is your, this is your data. Um, so they'll, you know, a, a lot of times they'll rationalize and say, oh, it's just circumstantial. Um, that was that an many outlier, times. right? <laughs> um, oh, you can't help who you get along with or who you connect with more. What? Yeah. So and like receiving Herceptin has anything to do with whether you want to go and have a beer with somebody? Exactly. <laughs> like it's not middle school. <laughs> and again, you liking me or us being able to chop it up should have no bearing on, you know, I have That's... hormone positive, um, her two negative, her two low breast cancer. Standard of care is X. This mm-hmm. is what I should receive. I feel like that's if an I, answer to a question that was never asked. Right. <laughs> that was not part of my question. Right, right. Ever. Um, or then the other stuff comes in where, it, oh, it must be biological. It must be <clears> lack <throat> of insurance or lack of income. Right. Oh. <laughs> I, uh, a recent book club book was um, Fatal Invention, and I'll just never stop talking about it ever. Uh, and the very basic premise of the book is that race is not biological. It is sociopolitical and so therefore to make decisions based solely on race is just the height of not the right question at all like you're not even in the same universe as the correct question so every time someone's like well it's biological I'm like but do you understand how biology works I don't (laughs) think so despite the fact that you're a physician you missed that part oh it's so scary yeah incredible yeah we were just talking this week um, about with Cal and Laura about the, like we had all these high hopes, we meaning the three of us, when when the human genome was sequenced and we discovered that we're so much alike and yeah. Yay. And everyone was immediately like, but what about that 1%? Right. Maybe it's in the 1%. It right? could be in the 1%. Have you looked at the 1%? <laughs> we're going to spend a ton of money to figure out if it's in the 1%. It's like, guys, there's so much more genome for you to look at really and you're searching for the thing that doesn't exist because it's not biological at all yeah searching biology for the non-biological good job everyone or maybe we just have to be attacked by aliens I, you know <laughs> i mean it's uh, yeah more likely well that's and oh. this is the thing because again um I feel that Black people, we know white people so well. And if we're in America, more than likely we have white people in our family. Right? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, again, I've traced back my heritage to 1760. I have white people in my family. Okay. So I kind of feel like we're, we're all cousins at this point. So, what is yeah. the point? Yeah. You know, it's like, come on. Yeah, the the book talked about an experiment that was studying and like grouping people by self-identified race in order to study biology. And they were like, they put a person who lives in San Francisco and whose family has been here since 17, pick a date, and a person in Nigeria in the same group because they both self-identified as black. And I was like, I think we're missing, I think we're missing the point (laughs) in a big way. Yeah, yeah. That's why we do the work that we do. Yes. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for possibly changing how the medical system works completely. I'm like, hoping so. It's funny because it's like, you know, we're working with Medicaid and we're working with all these, you know, great funders and, you know, the, the policy makers and all of that. And we're really evidence-based and because um, I just kind of feel like this particular issue has been ignored it's kind of like oh we can't deal we can't talk about that we can't deal with that um, and we're you know I feel that every they were dealing with every other issue they just weren't dealing with this and so that's what we do and um, 
yeah and you know people are just like oh my goodness and this is so amazing and it's and it's just kind of like uh nope this is just literally two plus two equals four so (laughs) you know know what the right treatment is based off of what the national guidelines are and i'm not a doctor i didn't come up with these national guidelines it is fact it's publicized all the hospitals have them if you're an oncologist you have access to it and so the same way that you treat a white patient you treat that same patient of color with based off of the same um information right yeah and then if a problem comes up that you know hey something came up that could potentially be a problem that could steer them off track on the care that's working. Let's help them with that mm-hmm. and keep them on track. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? If a person stays on their appropriate treatment for their individual cancer, they're going to have great outcomes and live longer. Oh my God. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, I you know I love compliments I love when people are like oh my god that's amazing you're a genius and it's just like I would think as a patient this is what we should be doing right what we should probably be doing for as providers <laughs> and reduce cost because we actually ask for that data too it reduces costs across the board and actually improves outcomes for everybody yeah go figure yeah this I, I see no I see no wrong here Right. You know, and, the- <laughs> and we help white patients too. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Can't imagine that standard of care helps white people too. What? Yeah. <laughs> and that and I love this book by um Heather McGee called The Some of Us, where it actually oh, yeah. goes into the cost of racism because it's bad enough that white people who are racist are pretty much putting energy against their own interests, right? Yeah. But if you actually quantify it, you know, it is just like so stupid. It's just like, it's just the cost benefit analysis is just not there. And so I wonder if there was like a tax on racism, if white people understood (laughs) the cost (laughs) that you are bearing because of this, Mm -hmm. would it still be worth it? I don't know. That's an interesting question. That's with a big yeah. counter in Times Square. Right, yeah. right. The numbers like just you're worried about the deficit, but do you know how much your racism is costing you? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. I kind of hope somebody's working on that. Like as a thing. That I feel like Heather McGee got close, you know, yeah. to really yeah. showcase it where, yeah. And who benefits from racism? About okay. 1% of people, maybe. Maybe. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm already done with all of those people anyway. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> burn it down. I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, Jamil, I, thank you again for, for taking the time to, to talk to us. Um, oh, thank you for we, inviting me. You are welcome. We, um, we will include the links to BC Navi and the Chrysalis Initiative in the show notes so you all can can look up what Jamil is doing and um, support um, or be supported by as you yes. need. <laughs> because we do not charge patients. Uh, see, yeah. even better, everything is free and yeah. um, this is wonderful. And so I have been Rebecca Sturgeon here with Corey Rivera and Jamil Rivers um, for this next this episode of Interdisciplinary. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can join us to continue the conversation in the Heal Well community because Jamil's there too yes. uh, <laughs> at community.healwell.org. Um, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash interdisciplinary. And please, please, please consider leaving us a review with your words. This really helps to get more people's ears on this podcast. Um, which also gets their ears and their eyes on things like the work that Jamila is doing, Jamila is doing so that um, more people can get the actual standard of care that they should be getting in the first place. So thank you very much. Thank you. Interdisciplinary is produced by Heal Well. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. 
New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.